sin's relationship to the law. But so far as we've gone through the book of Romans, we've seen that Paul's presented a wonderful uh, teaching on salvation. That's really what the whole book is about, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we saw early on in chapters 1 through 3, as we went through this wonderful book together over the last several months, uh, the need of salvation. And if you reread chapters 1 through 3, you're going to see that all have sinned, all have fallen short of God's glory. Every one of us, there's not one here perfect, including the Pope. We all need a Savior. And so there's a need of salvation because all of man is sinful. Every one of us. And so Paul points that out in the first three chapters, or the first two and a half chapters, um, uh, into a little bit into chapter 3 there. But chapters 3 to 5, we saw not only the need of salvation, but, but God showed us how we are to be saved. And we learned that it's not by works, it's not by coming to church, it's not by being dunked in a baptismal tank, or reading your Bible, or praying, or doing any of those things. That's not how you're saved. You're saved when God transforms your soul, when he saves you. And the only way he does that, the only way that he can justify you is by grace through faith. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. And we went into detail about that. And that's a hard thing for a lot of folks to grapple. We're going to see today in chapter 7 that some of the Jews were having an issue with Paul because he was saying, well, the law is uh, no longer able to save us and so forth. And he established several things about the law and they were having an issue with that. And so in verse chapters three to five, we saw the means of salvation. And then as we got into chapter six, we began to see the result of someone who's saved the result of this righteousness that we possess through Christ. And that is holiness. It's righteousness. It's sanctification that God is making us more like his son each and every day. And wonder what a wonderful process that is as we cooperate with God. It takes off the kind of rough edges of us and makes us more like his son. Hence, we call ourselves Christians or Christ followers. We want to be like our Savior. And so we look to the Word of God to show us that roadmap. What does that look like to be a Christian? What does that look like to be more like Christ? And so Paul has been establishing the following. The first of all, when he talks about the law in Romans 3 to 5, he basically told us in a nutshell that the law cannot save. He said the law was never given for to us to save us. The law cannot sanctify us. He told us that in chapter 6. In verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7 last week, we realized that the law can no longer condemn us as believers. We're no longer under that that, that uh, we've been released from the condemnation of the law. And see, what a wonderful thing that is. And today we're going to start in verse 7, and up through verse 13, he talks about that the law can convict both unbelievers and believers of sin. It does both, because we have what we call a conscience. Okay, just because you're not a Christian doesn't mean you don't get convicted when you do something wrong. And then verses 14 to 25, he talks about the law cannot deliver from sin, either before or after salvation. And then in chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, he says that it can be fulfilled by believers in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're here to, just as Christ was, was to fulfill the law. We can do the same thing.
And so we're going to be looking at that in the coming weeks. But the bottom line here Paul's trying to show us As you go through the book of Romans, it would be very easy to walk away from our study so far saying, yeah, the law, man, that's bad. The law is bad. Grace, that's good. Law, bad. And and Paul wants us not to think that because the law is God's word. Uh, It doesn't save us, has no power to save us. Um, It doesn't have power to make us more like Christ, to sanctify us in any way. Um, it, it, it does have the power to allow our sin to be known to us. It points out our sin to us. It shows us that we're under divine wrath. The Bible says that it can even enslave us, the law can, and that can lead to death. And so when we think of the law, I want you to think of the next couple words, these three words, law, sin, and death, because that's what Paul talks about here in Romans chapter 7. And when you look back at Romans chapter 6, verse 14, where Paul writes this, he says, Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under what? Under grace. And we go, yay, hooray, that's great, that's wonderful news. And see, those who have come to Christ, those who have trusted in Christ for their salvation, have been released or removed from, that's what we've been studying the last couple weeks, that we were released from the law, from that crushing, uh, enslaving, killing power of the law. It no longer has that dominant reign over us as believers. As a matter of fact, in verse 6, we closed off last week, and it says there in verse 6 that we have been released from the law of chapter 7. We have no longer to consider the law and sin that comes by disobeying the law as our dominant master. And so Paul is really kind of pointing that out to us very clear. And so he says the law and sin is no longer, he uses the illustration of marriage there, he's, it's no longer our husband. We died, and as a result of that, the bondage that we had in that union with sin by the law, that's over as new believers in Christ. And you have to understand that. If you're a new believer in Christ, if you're a Christian, you have to understand your position in Christ means something. You don't go on living your life the same way you did before Christ came into your life, before he transformed you, before he saved you. So according to what Paul is saying here is that the law of God is basically that which reflects God's character. It reflects his holy character. We sang the song, Holy, 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 this morning. It reflects God's moral law. It's not talking about ritualism. It's not talking about religion. It's not talking about ceremonies and doing certain things to earn God's favor. And so the wonderful news is that when you come to salvation by grace through faith, not by works, not by the law, you're released from that. You're no longer under that law. And... To be honest, there's a lot of people in, even in the church today in general that say, yeah, that's the kind of Christianity I'm talking about. You know, not these rules and regulations. You know, I just want to be able to do whatever I want. After all, Christ died for all my sins, right? All my sins are forgiven, so I can just go do whatever I want. As a matter of fact, back in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, 
We started off, and that's the question that Paul asked. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So some people in Paul's day, and even today in the church, get the idea that, yeah, you know, we believe in grace. We're grace Bible church. We believe in God's grace. We believe in God's grace. Oh, the law? No, that's bad. We don't talk about the law. And so there's, there's certain people, even within our society today, or even theology, theologians, who are, they, they call themselves anti, antinomianisms. Antinomian, they're, they're antinomian. They're basically what that means is anti-law. They're against any kind of law. And so they really take the grace of God and they misuse it to justify their sinful behavior because, hey, they're saved and their sins are forgiven. I'm not hurting anybody. What does it matter? The more I sin, the more God gets the glory because the more I need his grace. And that's what he's asking that question there in chapter 6, verse 1. And so we have to be reminded that this is where we've gone in this study. And so up to this point... Chapter 7, verse 7, our text for today, I'm going to read it for you right now. He asks another question. Paul's wonder when he's teaching, he's asking these questions before they even get out of his listeners' ear, mouths. You know, he knows what they're thinking. Another person who did that was Jesus, right? When he was talking with the Pharisees or whatever, he'd answer their question before they even asked it. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's kind of rhetorically asking these questions and answering them. And so a lot of this is is kind of repeat. He repeats himself over and over again to make sure that he's clear. But let's look at at verses, um, beginning in chapter 7, verse 7. And he says here, what shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died the very commandment that i promised life that promised life proved to be death to me for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and though and, and through it killed me verse 12 so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good kind of a crazy question that paul's asking here but that's exactly what was in their heads They were saying, okay, Paul, if this law can't do all these things that you just said it can't do, what good is it? Is it sin? What's the big deal? I mean, if all sin, if all all the law does is show us sin, indict us, kill us, bring us under the wrath of God and judgment, and if we've been taken as Christians out from under the law and its domain, that's what he just got done teaching us, if we've been released from the bondage of the law, then what good's the law? Is it sin? Is it evil? That's what he's asking. 
Because that's what they were asking. It seems as though all the law does up to this point is produce evil. Because salvation is by grace through faith. It's not by the law. And you know what? That's a very hard concept for not just a Jew to grasp, but anybody to grasp. The idea that that God would forgive us and save us and take us to his holy kingdom and wash us and cleanse us of all of our sins and make us new and give us new life and call us his children and his friends and take us to heaven to dwell with him forever. And he would do that and we don't have to improve our lives. We don't have to become righteous. We don't have to obey his law. That flies in the face of everything that the Jewish mind was taught since childhood. The Jews had a deep commitment to the law of God. They, had, they, that's, they lived their life by it. Now, yeah, they were hypocritical a lot of the time. But the law was not something that they trifled with. Um, they had a, a commitment to the works of the law, to earning their righteousness by maintaining works of the law to some degree. And that's why when Christ came along and began to teach, wait a minute, no, you're, you're, you're not saved by just what you look like. You can dress up in all the fancy robes you want, Pharisees. I know what your heart's like. And so he indicted them, not on what they looked like, but was what was on the inside. See, they were following all the, the rules, quote, of the law on the outside. But on the inside, they were missing the mark. And so the message of salvation by grace apart from the law was something that they couldn't get their hands around. They just could not really understand what that meant. And they felt like Paul basically just made a mess of everything by preaching and teaching this salvation by grace through faith. Now, there were people in Paul's day that had that antinomian kind of mentality. Well, we're just going to go sin more. But the Jews weren't that way. They had a respect for God, a reverence for God. As most, I would say, religious people today, if if most people go to church today, they have some respect for God. You know, they don't outright blaspheme God and and, and things like that knowingly. I mean, they don't want to do things like that. They have a kind of a built-in respect for the Lord doesn't save them, but they, they, at least they have that. And so the Jews believed that the law was the path to God. And Paul just took that path and oblit- just took it away, totally took it away. And so they're asking the question, well, okay, if I can't get there by the law, how do I get to God, Paul? How does this work? Um, I can't buy into the fact simply that, you know, it doesn't matter how my, I live my life and, and how I can just come to God and accept this free gift. I mean, I have to do something, Paul. What, what do I have to do? I mean, maybe I have to clean myself up or something. Maybe I have to stop sinning or doing whatever. And then, and then maybe God will save me. See, that's the mentality people have today. They have a mentality of, of work salvation that, you know, we have to do something to earn God's favor. And it permeates not just the world, it permeates the Christian church. And so, 
they, they esteemed the law. And they esteemed it so much, I mean, they were into the minutiae of the law. John MacArthur shares some interesting facts. He says, the rabbis pursued the Old Testament and they found 613 commandments. There were 248 mandatory things that had to be done. And they said somehow that related to the number of bones in the body, which I thought was kind of weird. But anyway, that's what they said. And it says that these commands, these 248 commands related to God, to the temple, sacrifices, vows, rituals, donations, Sabbaths, animals for consumptions, things that you ate, festivals, idolatry, war, social issues, family issues, judicial matters, legal rights, slavery, 248 different mandatory things that needed to be done. How would you like that? How would you like if on the way out I gave you a list of 248 things? Oh, you want to come to this church? Well, here's, here's the, the test. <laughs> Make sure you do all these. You'd never come back. Neither would I. That'd be crazy. Well, there were also, on top of the 248 things that needed to be done, there were 365 things that you couldn't do. And that talked about different days of the year, solar things, all this stuff. It talked about vows and agricultural things, and um, slaves, sacrifices, worship. They had one for each day. <laughs> um, I mean, if, if you can imagine yourself trying to live by these 248 things that you had to do and 365 things that you couldn't do, I'd lose my mind. Acts 15.10 says that it was a yoke, all right, around their neck. When we were little, we used to play uh, on the front yard. And I remember we used to tie ropes around, like they tie a rope around my neck, or I'd tie a rope around my nephew's neck, and he'd jump on my back, and, you know, I'd be the horse, or he'd be the horse. And I remember when he yanked that rope, man, you had to go, you know, I mean, you didn't have a choice, especially if he yanked it hard. And then finally, one somebody in our family saw what was doing that and said, <clears throat> you know, that's not probably the wisest thing that you guys need to be doing. Stop it. Um, but I remember having that thing around my neck. Boy, it didn't feel good. You know, I can only imagine what a horse feels like with that, that thing in its, its mouth. Um, you know, but it's, it's this law that, that really is, is something that, that is on them and it says, neither their fathers nor them are able to bear it. It's impossible. But they saw that as the only hope. They, they said, this is the only way that we can earn our favor with God is by doing these 248 things and not doing these 365 things. And, you know, they, they weren't far off the mark. I mean... You know, in the book of Deuteronomy, it tells us that cursed is he that does not conform to the words of the law by doing them. So they thought, man, we don't want to be cursed by God, so we need to do all this stuff. And it it seems that that's where they really put a lot of their effort. Well, over in Galatians chapter 3, the book of Galatians deals with a lot of legalism and different things like that. But in in Paul in Galatians chapter 3... He does point out to us the mere uh, fact that this is, this is a burden. And it, it's something that uh, 
as believers, it's a real issue. Look at what he says there in verse 10, Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. He said, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a blessing. No, it doesn't say that. It says under a curse. For it is written, and this is out of Deuteronomy 27, 26, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by the things written in the book of the law and do them. So that's pretty clear where they get that. And it's throughout the whole Old Testament. But look at what it says there in verse um, uh, 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. So he points that out. For the righteous shall live by what? Faith. And then in verse 12 he says, But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does uh, them shall live by them. What he's saying here is, you know what, if you accept the way of life as far as salvation goes, is the way that somehow you can keep this law and, and earn your salvation. He says, you're under a curse. It's not going to happen. And he basically points out, Paul does, that it's impossible to do that. James 2.10 says, whoever shall keep the whole law yet offend, where? In one point, is guilty of the whole law. So it's, it's not, you know, like you're, you're, you're just breaking part of the, the, the glass in the window. No, when you break the glass, the whole thing shatters, all right? That's the idea here. You can't just keep part of the law and say, oh, I'm good in this area, and not keep the rest, Okay, And so these people were in bondage to the law of God. They were working hard to bear up under this incredible burden that they had. Um, and what happens here in the New Testament is what happens. Paul comes along. Christ comes along. They begin to preach the gospel where they say, you know what? Salvation doesn't come by this law because you can't keep the law. Hate to break that news to you. You can't. You couldn't do it even if you tried. That righteousness comes from God through faith, and it comes by the grace of God alone. And if you put your trust in Him, God will grant you salvation. And when He said that, it just blew their minds. They said, "Wait a minute! No, we've been doing this for years this way. You know, you can't just come in here and well, this is this is how it is now." And so they would have to conclude. That if we can't be saved by the law, and we don't need to do this stuff, that we need to be delivered by the law, we must be released from the law, then you know what? The law must be a bad thing. The law must be sin. And so that's what Paul is saying here back to Romans chapter 7. That's what he's picking up. That's why he asked that question in verse 7. What shall we say then? Because he just finished off verse 6. We're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve a new way of the Spirit and not the old way under the written code. And so what role does the law play? So we're talking about our sanctification. We're talking about becoming more like Christ, that work of God that that processes that out in our lives each and every day. And so if we're not under the law, if we're released from the law, if we've died to the law... It no longer serves this, uh, we no longer serve it under the old written code, as it said there in verse 6. Then what does it do? And that's what we want to look at 
today. You know, if you go to into any, probably any college uh, classroom today, um, the one thing that you're going to find is a lot of the students uh, believe they hold one thing kind of common in their minds. And those of you that are in the classrooms probably know this, that all truth is relative. In general, that's what they teach and that's what they believe. And there's exceptions, clearly. But the, the tree, chief idea of relativism is basically that there's this tolerance and openness and, boy, you know, everybody's right. And so here comes Christ, here comes the gospel, here comes Paul saying, uh, I hate to break this to you, but um, there is only one way. <laughs> and there is a truth. Um, and not all truth is true that people claim to be true. And so this worldly relativism that it, it, it has a tendency to minimize or really even if in our culture today we look around in our society and it really just does away with sin. And it's not just out in the world, beloved. It's, it's in, within the church. It's within the church. I mean, I've, I've had pastors tell me personally that, you know what? We want our church to be a safe place for everybody. We want everybody to feel loved. We don't want anybody to feel judged. Um, we don't want anybody to feel out of place. So we're okay with the homosexual couple that comes in, and we want to accept them. We want to love them into the kingdom. We don't want to tell them that they're living in sin. And the heterosexual couples that, that's living together, you know, well, eventually they'll get married, and we just want to be patient with the process. And, you know, they're hearing the message every week, and, and we don't want to, you know, make a big thing out of this and, and just kind of, you know, relax and, and just love up on these people, and eventually they'll get it. God forbid we should call them aside and say, wait a minute, do you know that your lifestyle is an affront to a holy God? So the gospel of Christ somehow gets retooled. They take the glorious gospel of Christ and they retool it in a way that makes it seem like Jesus Christ is there to help you succeed in your family life, in your marriage, in your business Jesus Christ is there to help you meet your personal goals. Uh, he's there to meet your felt needs. So when people come to the church, it's like, okay, well, I'll commit myself to Christ, but you know, what's it going to do for me? That's the attitude. And I've had pastors tell me personally, you know what? You're never going to grow a church if you talk about sin, if you talk about the blood of Christ. If you talk about this, if you talk about that, people don't relate to that. That's offensive to people. You can't do that and expect people to embrace those kind of teachings. You need to tell people how much they're loved, how lovable they are, and build up their self-esteem. And you know, you know, you don't suggest that they're sinners. I mean, that doesn't help people. They don't walk away feeling good about themselves if you're going to do that. You know, I have this to say, if we're not sinners, then what are we doing looking for a Savior? Right? We don't need a Savior if we're not sinners. We don't need a Savior who died to bear the penalty of our sin if sin's not a big issue. Charles Spurgeon said this, Too many think lightly of sin 
and therefore think lightly of the Savior. And that's very true. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, The biblical doctrine of sin is absolutely crucial to an understanding of the biblical doctrine of salvation. Whatever we may ask, we cannot be right and clear about the way of salvation unless we are right and clear about sin. And so, since Romans 7 is pretty much one of the most penetrating analysis of sin in all of Scripture... We need to understand what Paul is saying here. And so he starts off there in verse 7, and he says, May it never be. What shall we say then? The law is sin by no means. Absolutely not, he exclaims. Because he, he knows the word of God. God's law is holy. It's righteous. It's good. He knows it's not sin. That's what he says down in verse 12. That it's holy, it's righteous, it's good. So today I want to look at that God gave his law to convict us of our sin and to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we would flee to Christ for salvation. Um, I think a lot of us have self-righteousness so ingrained in us that until the, the stripes of the law kind of convict us of our own sin, we will not cast ourselves totally on Christ. Because we live in a culture, once again, that's not focused on the sinfulness of man. You don't sin, you just make a mistake, or you make a life choice. Um, You may want to bring Jesus into your life as a life coach, you know, to help you out, a self-improvement program. I mean, that's where people are at with all this. But to trust him as our Savior, if you're you're going to need a Savior, you're going to have to understand the depth of our sin from which we need to be saved. And that's what Paul describes here. Uh, Now, this section of Romans is kind of difficult. It's hard. It's going to take a couple weeks to get through this, but it's it's, it's hard to understand. Um, You notice in verses 7 to 25 of chapter chapter 7, verses 7 to 25, he changes to the first person singular. And uh, does it again in there in chapter 8. He goes back, back to the other. It's kind of interesting why he does that. And there's a lot of scholars that debate, is Paul speaking about himself? Is he not? What's going on here? Um, and then in verse 9, he says something that's, that's really tough to understand, that, that he's been alive apart from the law. And there's a lot of controversy. I mean, you can read for ages on all this stuff and try to figure this out. But we're going to kind of approach this in a pretty simplistic manner and just take it at face value and see if we can understand what Paul is writing here. He's using his own experience, I believe, to show how the law functions, how the law brings conviction of sin. But he also wants us to understand that it's powerless to deliver us from sin's grip. So the law of God does have a role to play. We don't want to just throw it out now that we're under grace. It does have a role. Well, one of those roles is the first point here in our outline, that the law is not sin, but it does reveal our sin. That's what he says in verse 7. The law is the law sin? No way. He says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. It goes back to the same illustration. Unless there's a sign 
that says you're breaking the law, you're, or the sign that says you're to go 30 miles an hour and you're driving 50, if there's no sign, you're not convicted of anything. But if they got a big sign there, the ones that get me a lot of times are the ones that actually track you live. You know, the ones that are solar, the little solar panels, and you're driving down Jefferson. Your speed is, you know, 55. <laughs> then underneath it says 30. You know, you should be going 30. So it's kind of a reminder. If that wasn't there, you wouldn't feel any conviction. All right? So the law reveals our sin. Look at this. I don't know if I put this in your outline or not, but... Um, Yeah, I did. Okay, God uses a holy thing, the law, to reveal an evil thing, sin, so that a necessary thing, death, might result in the most important thing, life. Isn't that incredible? When you stop and you read that and you think about that, he uses a holy thing. God's law is holy. It's not bad. It's holy. It's his word. But he uses it to reveal an evil thing, sin, so that that a necessary thing, death, might result in the most important thing, life. I didn't write that. Somebody else wrote it. I just took it out of commentary. But I thought it was a good way to, to really understand what Paul is saying here. Um, and so he says there, what shall we say then is the law sin, may it never be. And so he's responding to these critics there that would bring a reaction to what he said in verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, that was, was aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. The Jews honestly believed that God gave the law to give us life. That's what they thought. They thought that God gave us the law to make us holy. And Paul claimed, no, basically the law, what's it do? It arouses sin in us. And it results in death. And that's why he's asking that question, is the law sin? And so he argues these different functions of the law. And he uses a personal example with the Tenth Commandment against coveting. That's what he says. He goes on in verse 7. He says, let me give you an example. He says, personally in my own life, For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Isn't it interesting he used that one? You know, you stop and you think, why did he pick that one? Why did he pick this commandment against coveting? Because it really embodies God's requirement, if you stop and think about it, for living a holy life. It's the only command, if you stop and think about it, of the ten, that condemns evil in the heart. He could have said, hey, I, I, knew, I didn't know it was wrong to murder until you know, it said you shall not murder. But that's something you physically do. That's something you could see somebody doing. Somebody murders your neighbor and you watch him, you're going, well, that guy's a murderer. Or someone walks over to your desk and takes something off your desk and steals it. You go, well, that guy's a thief. How are you going to know if somebody's coveting? It's in their heart. So he went right to the heart level. And you know what? Jesus did the same thing. He pointed out commands against murder and adultery. And by implication, all the commands, really, that they go deeper than just the outward action. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. If you're angry at your brother, what? 
you violated the command that you should not murder. If you lust in your heart toward a woman, you've committed adultery in God's sight, even though you haven't done anything physically. But the command against coveting explicitly goes right to someone's heart. Coveting really concerns your heart's desires, whether you ever act on those desires or not. When Paul says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, he does not mean that he or others do not know sin at all apart from the law. That's not what he's saying. He's already said that back in chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, that Gentiles who do not have the law, right, they have the, the work of the law written on their hearts. They have a conscience. There's a lot of people that sinned from Adam to Moses. They didn't have the law of God. But they were still held responsible, even though they didn't have the written law. And so what Paul is saying here is that especially this 10th commandment, focusing on these inward desires, what he's saying is, you know what, this one really got me. (laughs) This one really nailed me. It really came at me and it showed me my sin against God. Now, who was Paul before he was a Christian? He was Saul, right? He was a self-righteous Pharisee. That's what he was. And he thought that all of his deeds commended him to God. Matter of fact, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, he even says himself, in regard to the law, he's what? Blameless. Right? He says, I'm blameless. You can't pin anything on me. But see, when the Holy Spirit brought this 10th commandment about coveting home to his conscience and showed it to him, Paul realized, wow, I violated God's law. At that point, he came to know sin. I mean, you, you, you can't understand that, but that's, that's really what, what happened to, to Paul. Now, remember who Saul was. Saul would go around and he would kill Christians. And he thought that by doing that, he was pleasing God. He wasn't just a brute in the neighborhood. I think I'll go whack off a couple Christians today. No, he did it as one of his religious duties. He thought, hey, these people are infringing on our our Judaism, and this isn't right what they're saying, so we need to take these people out. That's what he did. I mean, when you stop and think about it, it wasn't too far from what's going on today in the world with ISIS. These people really believe what they're doing is somehow commending them to their God. It's hard to understand. Put somebody in a cage and light them on fire and you think God would be pleased with that? That's what they have in their mind. Kill the infidels. And at that point in Saul's life, he came to understand sin. He came to know sin. He came to to realize what it was. And you have to have that in your life. You know, you can't come to church and just put on different clothes and carry a Bible and sing some songs and and think that somehow that's saving you. That's not saving you. No one is saved until they come to the point in their life where they realize that their sin is an affront to a holy God and it needs to be dealt with. The only way to do that is through the law. The law shows us that. 
Well, why do you need the law to do that? Because you know what? Most people, even in our community today, if you go around and you ask people on the street, hey, if you die today, do you think you go to heaven? Very seldom people would say no. Most people would probably say, well, I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, hopefully I'll make it. <laughs> or they'll say, oh, I'm Methodist, I'm Baptist, or I'm... Well, that's not the question. <laughs> but that's where they go. Why? Because that makes them feel good about themselves. And so they're trying to what? They're, they're, they're trying to justify who they are. They're thinking well of themselves. Most people think that they're pretty good people. At least I'm not like my neighbor. <laughs> At least I'm not like my brother. At least I'm not like my sister. At least I'm not like this or that or whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. And remember what Jesus told people. If you want to enter the kingdom, you don't just have to be good. You have to be what? Perfect. You have to be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. And so people today even excuse their bad sins. They make excuses for them. Just as Paul excused his violent persecution of of Christians. It was a good cause in his mind. I mean, you can even go into a, a prison today. These guys are locked up in prison. And you can sit down and you can ask them, you're a bad guy. And probably a majority of them was, well, I'm not that bad. No, you know, I'm not as bad as these other guys in here, man. I'll tell you, you know, I mean... Yeah, I got angry at my brother-in-law murdered him, but, you know, I'm still a pretty good guy. You know, I watch after my friend. And that's what they justify it. They, they truly do. I've seen it happen over and over and over again. I've seen men, unfortunately, heard men even justify, you know, little pornography here and there. You know, it's. Everybody looks at it. After all, you know, it's not that big of a deal. It's not really hurting anybody. And, you know, I'm not really cheating on my wife. It's not something, you know. Or the anger. You have an anger issue. Maybe you lose your temper. Hey, I didn't get out of the car and physically do anything. I just yelled at him through the the window. We were going down, John and I were going down to get the lunch yesterday, and we were walking through the parking lot, and hear this, you know, lady cussing this other lady out, just back and forth. I mean, language. This is, I'm just thinking, man, how sad is that? And she pulled out of the thing, went around. She's still yelling all the way down the street. You're still, you know, blankety, blankety, blank. I thought, man, this lady's really upset. But I'm sure if you pulled that lady aside, calmed her down, hey, are you a bad person? Oh, I'm a pretty good person. Oh, yeah. See, people excuse all manner of sin and they think of themselves as basically good people. Why? Because they have not come to know God's law. Especially the law of God as it confronts our evil inner desires. And at the heart of this coveting is really the idea of the enthronement of self as Lord. That's what it is.
And we need to be aware of that. So the law is not sin, but it does reveal our sin. Secondly, the law provokes sinners to sin. Oh, one last thing. I just forgot this. If you look over at James, James chapter 1. And this just kind of drives home the point here. James chapter 1, verse 22. After getting done saying, you know, you need to hear the word and, and put away all filthiness and all this stuff. He says in verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It's one twenty-two. I'm sorry, I think I said 222. One twenty-two. Verse 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, listen to this. He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once he forgets what he was like. You know, you get up in the morning. You make your way into the bathroom and you look in the mirror. I mean, how ridiculous would it be to look at that mirror and say, you know, I don't like what I'm looking at. <laughs> Stupid mirror. That'd be a ridiculous thing, right? I mean, you wouldn't break the mirror. I mean, it's just revealing what, what you are, who you are. That would be silly. Just as silly as walking away going, oh, well, whatever. And go about your business. No, you want to fix whatever is broken. You don't want to break the mirror. What Paul's point back in Romans is, is The law is a good thing. The law is not bad. The law reveals our sin. Don't make a villain out of the law. It's just showing you who you are. The law is good. It's righteous. But secondly, the law provokes sinners to sin. The law provokes sinners to sin. He says in verse 8, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin is death. So Paul here basically says, first of all, the law reveals our sin. But secondly, it provokes us to sin. You know, he basically personifies here sin as an active force that uses the law to provoke us to commit acts of sin. Sin basically meaning the principle of the power, not just acts of sin, but, but the, whole, the whole deal. Um, and he says that again down in verse 11, sin taking an opportunity through the commandment. That word opportunity is kind of interesting. It has the idea of setting up a military base, kind of like a beachfront, beach, beachhead kind of a thing where, where you would uh, run all your campaigns from. All right? And uh, so sin takes God's holy commandments and he uses them to tempt us. Uses us to tempt, tempt us to violate those commands. James Boyce tells an interesting story when he was a little kid in his commentary. He says, the principal came into the classroom just before lunch and said that he had heard that some of the students had been bringing firecrackers to school. He went on to warn about the dangers of firecrackers and say that anyone caught with firecrackers at the school would be expelled immediately. Well, Boyce didn't own any firecrackers. 
and he hadn't even thought about bringing firecrackers to school. But when you get to thinking about firecrackers, it's an intriguing subject, he says. He then remembered that one of his friends had some firecrackers in his garage. So during their lunch break, he and his friend went by his other friend's house, got a firecracker, and took it back to school. They went into the cloakroom and planned to light it, but they were going to pinch it out real quick before it exploded. But the lit fuse burned the fingers of the boy who was holding it. He dropped it, and it exploded with a horrific bang, echoing in the old building with its high ceilings and marble floors and plaster walls. Before the boys could stagger out of the cloakroom, the principal was out of his office, down the hall, standing there to greet them. He later says, as he sat in the principal's office with his parents, he remembers the principal saying over and over again, I had just told them not to bring any firecrackers to school. I can't believe it. But see, that's how sin operates, isn't it? And it's not just, you know, St. Augustine said the same thing. He had a little confession and he said, there was a pear tree near, the, near our vineyard laden with fruit. One stormy night, we rascally youths set out to rob it and carry our spoils away. We took off a huge load of pears, not to feast upon ourselves, but to throw them to the pigs. Though we ate just enough to have the pleasure of the forbidden fruit. They were nice pears, but it was not the pears that my wretched soul coveted, for I had plenty better at home. I picked them simply in order to become a thief. The only feast I got was the feast of iniquity and that I enjoyed it to the full. What was it that I loved in that theft? Was it the pleasure of acting against the law in order that I, a prisoner under rules, might have a maimed counterfeit of freedom by doing what was forbidden? The desire was to steal, was awakened simply by the prohibition of stealing. That's what happens. And that's what the law does. The law says you shouldn't do this. Well, you know what? What are we doing? We're, we're driven to that. We want to do that. And so it provokes us to sin. Even before the flood, when God gave the law to Moses, the world was so sinful. In, ver- in chapter 6, verse 5 of Genesis, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth and that the intent of their hearts, the intent of their thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so when you stop and you, you think, how is, is Paul able to say apart from the law, sin is dead? He meant it was dead to him. He saw himself as a good person. The law had not been yet revealed to his heart in that way. And so he says, apart from the law, yeah, didn't matter. There's an allegory in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's book, which talks about the arousal of sin by the law. And it reads this way. He says, a large dust-covered room in interpreter's house symbolized the human heart. When a man with a broom representing God's law began, begins to sweep, the dust swirls up 
and all but suffocates Christian, the character in the book. And that is what the law does to sin. It so agitates sin that it becomes stifling. And just as a broom cannot clean a room of dust, but only stir it up, so the law cannot cleanse the heart of sin, but only make the sin more evident and unpleasant. And that's what Paul is showing us here. Third thing the law does is the law, through our failure to keep it, brings us to the end of ourselves. And that's what he says there in verses 9 to 11. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. We're going to touch on that next week as well. But it's important to note here when Paul says that he was once alive apart from the law. Okay, this same apostle is the one who said that before salvation, we're all dead in our sins. So what does he mean by that? How could he once be alive if he says at another point in time in Ephesians, he says we're all dead in sin. What was he talking here about? Apart from the law, he was raised from his youth up with the strictest traditions of Judaism. And when sin did sin did kill him, when did that happen? We're going to answer all those questions. And I think that that's one thing that we need to be reminded of. That the law is not there for us to keep it. It's there to reveal our sin. It's there to point out our sin. It's through the law that we understand our need of a Savior. That's why it's so important when you're sharing the gospel. You don't always need to make the gospel sound so flowery and oh jesus wants to come into your life and just make the best thing of everything and just please you please you please you you know that's that's not necessarily the truth all right as a matter of fact the bible says that when jesus comes into our life it's going to get harder it's going to get more difficult it's going to become a struggle and so we need to be aware of that And so when you're sharing the gospel with people, a lot of times it's good to share the law of God with them first. To help them understand that, you know what? There is a law and that you've broken the law. And this is what the law of God says. And then when they become undone, then you share the grace of God with them. You share that, hey, there's a way out of this mess. You know, you don't just bail them out right away. Because they're not going to understand their need for a savior if that's the case. For somebody in our congregation. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, today that you clearly uh, have given us your complete word, including the law of God. It's not something that we should um, not understand. It's not something that we should set aside. It's not something that we should not um, read and, and apply to our lives. But, Lord, we also know that the law can't save us. It's only by grace we're saved through faith, through the work of Christ. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here today who's been trying to maybe save themselves, trying to do all the right things, trying hard to live and transform their life and and find themselves and do all these things that modern man tells us that we need to do, clean our act up, whatever it might be, all that stuff is not going to save you. You simply need to cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
you have to understand that outside of Christ, there's no hope for you ever being saved. That you have to come to the end of yourself and realize that he is the only Savior. There's not many roads that lead to his kingdom. There's only one. And by the way, he even says that gate is narrow. So we we pray today for anyone here who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, that you would convict their heart of their sin, that you would draw them to the Savior, that you would reveal to them their need of a Savior. And Lord, for us believers, as we go out into this lost and dying world, Lord, that we would have a message of hope and of forgiveness through Christ. Lord, that we wouldn't try to fine-tune the gospel to make it pleasing to men's ears, but Lord, that we would give it boldly, and truthfully, and let that do the work in man's hearts. And Father, we thank you, and we praise you for our time here this morning. We ask that you would bless the remainder of our day. In Jesus' name, amen.